welcome to It Just So Happens. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 13th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? Well, it's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk round, where Harry Potter was conceived, and a place renowned for its smell. Once known as Old Ricky, yes, it's Edinburgh. <laughs> we are performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world. And our venue this afternoon is the space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfair and completed in 1832, it's one of many category A-listed buildings in the city. And we have an audience in the museum with us today as the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year. So we welcome about one one-hundred-thousandth of that number to this show. What's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. Please welcome Michael Akadiri, Dave Chawner and Daniel Downey. So give yourselves an opportunity very briefly to introduce yourselves. Michael, I know you're both a junior doctor and a comedian, mm -hmm. and you've been BBC New Comedy Award London finalist before, mm -hmm. is that correct? Yeah. yeah. It feels weird being here, because this is the Royal College of Surgeons, and if I wasn't doing comedy right now, I'd be doing some surgery, so, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a place of familiarity. Right, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that later yeah, as well, definitely. thank you. And Dave, you are a number one best-selling author, uh, an award-winning stand-up comedian, a presenter and a mental health campaigner. Is that a fair summary? And not a surgeon, so yeah, I, I, if, I, if I wasn't here today, I definitely wouldn't be doing surgery, so that's, that's me, yeah, that's true. Thank you. Daniel, I believe you are also a stand-up comedian and an Edinburgh walking tour guide. Yeah, I have a, a comedy walking tour of Edinburgh. I take you around the city, I show you the sights, I make you laugh. It's Scottish history with jobby jokes, basically. That's the way I describe it. <laughs> <laughs> Ever know what a jobby is? No. Oh. A jobby's a poo. Oh. It's Scottish oh. people's favourite word. Oh. You were thinking of something else, weren't you? <laughs> Here I got it's one of two jobs it could be. <laughs> In terms of the podcast, uh, straight over to you, Michael, please, for your on this day topic. So I yeah. So when preparing for this, I thought, oh, let me do a little deep dive, and the US. On the, no, on the 30th of August 2015, so by my maths, that's seven years ago, the US returned a stolen Picasso painting back to France. So, 14 years ago, which, oh my goodness. No, 14 years, but in 20, 2001, uh, in the museum in France, there was a Picasso painting called the Le Confuise, which I thought meant confusion, but it actually just means the hairdresser. Maybe that's why I was confused, because that's the last one I've seen recently. Um, <laughs> but it was created by Pap uh, Pablo Picasso in 1911. And apparently it was in the back of this museum in France, and it mysteriously went away. So someone clearly had stolen it. And for 14 years, they had no clue where this painting was. And this painting was worth 15 million US dollars. So quite a bit of change, not money I've ever seen in my life. And Apparently, it only became to be found again is when someone with a Belgian address tried to send it from Belgium to Newark, New Jersey. 
and it tried to send it in FedEx parcel sort of machine, <laughs> and it labeled it as some $37 arts and crafts. <laughs> so clearly they didn't insure it properly. And um, I don't know, what, I, I just kept thinking, what would you have done if you were the FedEx driver that day and you came up with this parcel? What's the question? Ethics, entirely, because that, I'm sure I would have handed it over, but I'm sure there's some people here who may have not been so ethical. And then, and at that juncture, when it was found, the, the American authorities handed it over to the French Embassy in the States, and then it got rightfully returned back to us. So, I was just an interesting story, and also, it just set the precedent that countries can return high contracts over the long Segue pieces between the panelists, so this is my first one, and the questions directed towards the panelists. So, question: What was installed for public use as the first of its kind on the corner of Main Street and Central Road in downtown Hartford, Connecticut? What was installed for the first of public use? Yes. I mean, it's a very specific question. What, yeah. what was the year, Richard? Uh, I haven't been there yet. That's oh, right. Well, that's, I yeah, I mean, the year, don't I? I can't even yeah. treat it a dark year. A water fountain. Uh, it was 1889. Public use, a street corner. It was the world's first paid telephone. Oh, that makes much more sense. Yes. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't going the way you think. No, no, it definitely wasn't. Although, you know, Find them in red. I'm not going to do that. I don't know anything about that. Who patented this device on this day in 1889? What the telephone? The, the pay telephone. Oh, oh they. I, I realise. Oh, I, fall in the trap seen I, I think you've really. Like, Alexander Graham Bell or Flair. Well, he's a telly, isn't he? Or John Logie Beard is a telly. No, but it was uh, it was actually the son of a Scottish immigrant to the US, which is kind of why I asked it that way, because maybe we should know this. Son of a Scottish immigrant, Andrew Carnegie. It was William Gray. William Gray. And I haven't heard him before. He was a precision machinery polisher and amateur tinkerer who lived in Hartford. He was best known for designing an improved chest protector for the baseball catcher that became the game standard in the 1890s. I think that's also getting a lot of mileage out of the phrase best known for. Like, you know what I mean? That's still some quite niche knowledge there, really. Oh, yeah, the guy that does the Facebook thing. Oh, yeah, I know that guy, yeah. I'm best known for my solution. So, how did people make telephone calls before the invention of the paper? It goes through to a switchboard. All right, sorry, no, right. Two cups and a piece of string. <laughs> Telegram was, was uh, certainly predated that, yeah. I was about to say 50, but I ain't got to do it. Yeah, Morse code. All, all these things, yeah. Well, there were, there were, in terms of telephones, there were telephones in many homes and businesses at that point. But if you were on the street and had to go to one of the relatively rare integrated telephone pay stations, and then you had to pay a fee to make a call. But William Gray was inspired uh, to create the payphone. In a rather dire situation, when depending on whom you ask, either his boss or his neighbour or the workers at a nearby factory refused to let him use their phone to call a doctor for his wife, who was ill. So eventually, as it happens, Gray found the phone and his wife recovered. So that was but Gray's first prototype device involved a box that covered the mouth of the receiver, 
and would slide away when a coin was deposited. However, that was rejected on the grounds that one coin could buy several phone calls. And also, if another station was called, the receiver would also have to pay, which was not a very good solution because they'd have to find money to work on the other side. So after a few more failed attempts, Gray found a simple solution, which was a coin controlled apparatus. It used a small bell to tell the operator when a coin was deposited, and a couple of years later, a more elaborate signal device for telephone pace records. Cottages people. In 1891, Gray set up the Gray Telephone Pay Station Company and began installing phones on posts and in cabinets across America. He continued to refine his creation, eventually racking up more than 20 payphones related to the Gray Company. And 100 years later, there were more than 2 million payphones installed in the United States. So bringing it to the UK, as of November 2021, how many usable phone boxes do you think are still left in the UK? Four. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Two and a HD and it was. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that people still use, or it's just there? People still use, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. 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 used for what purpose? Because a lot of them are used as like, I'll I'll give you the answer. Okay. It's still 21,000. <laughs> so in May 2020, about 5 million calls were made from phone boxes. But that totaled just 7 million minutes, so they weren't used very much. However, Ofcom has certain criteria for saying that a phone box cannot be removed under certain circumstances, so I've got any ideas what they might be. Have to be a listed phone box, just like the Surgeon's Hall Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like, you know, like those, those ones in the high state, like the old London yeah. designs? Because people love them, right? And yeah. so they're like, they'll, they'll take them away because we really love the. You know what I mean? It's like the old police boxes. It's up to who? Aye. Someone once told me that like BT actually make more money from the advertising slapped on the side of them than they do the actual calls now. Possibly, yeah. That would definitely make sense, yeah. So, I'm going to say it is due to the sort of wealthy area. Like, is there any link to how many phone boxes are in the wealthy area compared to the middle class area? Officially not. But basically, if uh, if the, the four main mobile networks are not covered in that location, that's one reason. If it's an accident or suicide hotspot is another reason. And then quite specifically, if more than 52 calls have been made from it in the previous 12 months, <laughs> they obviously have a way of logging that. So as a final question on this section, do you know of some examples of what obsolete UK phone boxes have been converted into and not public toilets in this case? Uh, um, Bus shelters. Bus shelters. Aye. Tall, they make a good wee But like, I'm thinking, like, I'm in Shetland or something, just one wee oh, guy waiting on a bus only like, comes once a day. And... Changing rooms for Superman? Yeah. <laughs> that's not Oh, that's good. We should write off with these suggestions. Um, some have been used for libraries or book exchanges in about 150 different locations. There's an art gallery for a settlement in the sandbox. And also, they use this storage for defibrillators. So, e.g., in Lowswater, Orkham Glade, Withenwick, and Whitford. I think whose job that was if they had like a kind of. Do you know what I mean? Like, a, let's have a wee brain trust of what we could use for. Like, someone's getting paid to do that. I also hope they don't get them mixed up. Imagine trying to make a call and it being a defibrillator. It's like uh, 150 volts to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, and that's over to you, Dave, for your topic. Thank you. Oh, um, set your expectations low. It's uh, so today is Alfred Hitchcock's birthday. Um, he's dead, um, <laughs> so it's not. It's not. He's not celebrating it. But um, I want to talk about him for a couple of different reasons. Mainly because, like, uh, he, he was a bit of a dick, and he uh, liked doing he liked doing practical jokes. So I found this out when I was looking at this. And famously, I think it was when he was uh, filming like The Bird, he um, he handcuffed two of his like. Uh, he basically did some sort of bet that one of the people couldn't stay on set overnight because they would be too scared. So he, for some reason, handcuffed them and then force-fed them laxatives so that they just shit themselves on set. And I was just reading it, I was like, what a dick. Um, so it's his birthday today, and I wanted to talk about that because he really liked dogs, and I'm doing a show about dogs. If you like dogs, come along at eight o'clock at the Sea Cat. There you go. That's that's mine. <laughs> Shameless plug. Thank you very much. Straight on to the next segue then from me. On this day in 1910, the English social reformer, statistician, and founder of modern medicine, Florence Nightingale, died. Question to the panel: Where was she born? London. No. Glasgow. No. Think of her name. Oh, Nightingale. She was born in Florence on the 12th of May, 1820, and she was named after the Florence city. Her parents were spending their honeymoon there. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's more last than I gave my shout. Yeah. Uh, from an early age, she was able to read and write French, German, Italian, Greek, and Latin. In 1854, Nightingale was put in charge of nursing British and Allied soldiers in Turkey during the Crimean War. She spent many hours in the wards, and during her night rounds gave personal care to the wounded, and this established her caring image. Question, what nickname was given to her, and how did it come about? The Lady of the Lamp. Yay! Yes. Any idea where that came from? She was Widow Twanky pantomime version of Aladdin and that sort of stuck with her and they said she was Lady of the Lamp. Also a little fact because I bet you're going to bring this up, she's also invented the pie chart. Yes. Not funny, just true. <laughs> That's the only fact that I have. So I'm just going to finish the house. Few fucks was given by this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe someone might be a bit. If there was a pie yeah, chart of how many fucks were given, it exactly. would just be a pie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No one here cares about pie charts. <laughs> So the, the lady with the lamp came from a report in the Times newspaper. Her efforts to formalise nursing education led her to establish the first scientifically based nursing school, the Nightingale School of Nursing, at St Thomas's Hospital in London, and opened in 1860. She was instrumental in setting up training for midwives and nurses in the workhouse in Birmingham. International Nurses Day, observed annually on the 12th of May, commemorates her birth and celebrates the important role of nurses in healthcare. Question. Soon after arriving in Crimea, she contracted so-called Crimean fever, which was probably brucellosis, which confined her to bed, often with chronic pain. How long did she suffer from this? They're not the most uplifting questions. Actually, <laughs> are they? I mean, like, last time I did this, it was a bit of a laugh. Um, but I'm going to say the rest of her life. 
20 plus years. Yeah, yeah, it's 25 years. So I, I, I didn't know this before. So she suffered really chronic pain for 25 years from brucellosis. So that on top of her achievements is... What is brucellosis? It's uh, something to catch a dodgy animal. She became the first woman to receive what honour? Nobel something. Good beer badge. Oh, <laughs> A gold one. Oh, God. Don't be silly. That's too, too much. I would... Um, she became a nurse. Like, did they have nurses? Could you have nurses for female lady nurses before then? She wasn't. But was she the first? I always thought she was the first. I thought it was the whole point of like Florence Nightingale was like she was like the first nurse. Well, what I mean is because like there's like James Braidwood here in Edinburgh set up the first fire brigade, and he was like the first guy to set up fire brigade, and that's why I thought Florence was famous for her. like she kind of started nursing or like making like an official thing. I mean, people were putting out fires before this guy existed. I assume, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Am I making any sense at all? That's what I thought. Um, I'll tell you the answer to my question anyway. The first woman to receive the Order of Merit. And were we yeah, ever going to get that? Like, we were like, uh, what, what, is, what is the Order yeah, of Merit? It? Uh, it's given to you don't know. Given to people who. Why was that to be very, very threatening? I am sorry. It's given to people who do things in the arts, uh, other than just getting uh, the kind of gold or whatever. It's to people recognised for their contributions to society. Right. In terms of arts, kind of political and whatever. I bet he will. Bullshit an answer there, Richard. <laughs> 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 you can be a politician, my friend. Thank you. Uh, just need to decide which party to join. <laughs> On her death in 1910, at Nightingale's prior request, her family declined the offer of a state funeral and burial in Westminster Abbey. Right, final question on this section. In what city does Florence Nightingale have no fewer than four hospitals named after her? London. Rome. Nice guess, Dick, there. Where did she go again when you say you mentioned Crimea? My geography of Crimea is not what it used to be. Uh, and some, are, some are the earth over. She went.
I thought Crimea was in Scotland, so I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say it's my on this day is a. Uh, it was the first, the start of the second wars of Scottish independence. Uh, it started the Battle of Dublin Moor in 1332, and it was uh, fought between supporters of Scotland's infant monarch David II and the English-backed supporters of Edward Balliol. David was the son of Robert the Bruce, and like those are some pretty big shoes to fill, aren't they? You know what I mean, like David never ever got the. You know what I mean? You know, like like Robert the Bruce. Like you've got to look. David never ever made it that. I always think like being David the Second must be like being Alex Ferguson's laddie. You know what I mean? Like he's the most successful manager of all time, and you're like managing Peterborough United or some shaky club like that. Anyway, David uh, uh, ascended to the throne of Scotland at the tender age of only five years old, which is very very young. But even still, he was more qualified to run the kingdom. Boris fucking Johnson is. <laughs> I can assure you, you should be applauding that, ladies and gentlemen. That's what you should be doing. Yes, I'm glad to go. But anyway, the bar uh, a bit higher. What was that? You need to set the yeah, bar you're a bit right, higher. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And so basically, what was going on here was that the English king, Edward III, he desperately wanted to win back the gains in Scotland that had been gained by his grandfather, Edward I and then lost by his father, Edward I, Edward II, sorry, the Battle of Bannockburn. Although they weren't lost by England. Let's get this clear, right? They were won by Scotland, right? <laughs> it's just like the nil-nil draw as well last summer, right? It wasn't you fucking it up, it was us being absolutely brilliant. <laughs> if you're not from Scotland, we celebrate a nil-nil draw against the English last summer. That's the level of misery you're aspiring to, my friend. <laughs> celebrate nil-nil draws, that's what we do here in Scotland. But anyway, right. So peace between Scotland and England had been agreed in the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1328. But Edward was like, ah, bollocks of this, we're going to have Scotland back. And so probably the next thing Liz Truss says to her supporters down the road. <laughs> Balliol, so the other guy involved in the war, Edward Balliol, he had lesser lesser shoes to fill. Uh, his father was known as Toon Tavern, which was a derogatory term meaning empty tunic. The implication being that John was a pointless leader in Scotland working purely to appease his masters in London. He was Douglas Ross, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after the Scottish King Alexander III rode himself off a cliff in 1286, genuinely that happened, by the way, uh, he died. The only surviving heir was his three-year-old granddaughter, Margaret the Maid of Norway. Now, Margaret, she died on the journey from Norway to Scotland. She died of seasickness. Which I'll admit, I didn't think was a thing. I think we'd be too blasé about sending those kids away with Captain Birdseye all these years. <laughs> <laughs> and so Margaret's death meant the end of the Canmore dynasty. And so there was basically no one to be the next king of Scotland or the next queen of Scotland. But there were 13 competitors. Of those 13 competitors, only two would be taken seriously. So it was like the Scottish Premiership, basically. <laughs> only two teams could win. And so those two people were Robert the Bruce, not that Robert the Bruce, his grandfather, and John Balliol. And so what the Scots did at this point was they asked the English king, Edward I, to arbitrate over who should be the next king of Scotland. Now, there's no way to get across to you lovely people how crazy a decision this was. It'd be like sending your granny to Harold Shipman for a checkup. Honest to God, like, absolutely bonkers decision. And so Edward... 
he decided to back the claim of John Balliol. But John Balliol was just an empty tunic, as we already mentioned earlier. Now, anyway, John Balliol, John Balliol was king of Scotland for a very, very short time before Edward I eventually got bored and went, you know what, bollocks to this, I'm just going to make myself king of Scotland. He invaded Scotland in 1296, defeated Scotland's Battle of Dunvant. Now anyway, John Balliol, he was sent away to the papal prison, uh, which is where they sent misbehaving rangers to <laughs> <laughs> He died in France in 1313. And so basically when he died, his son Edward, he was brought up in France. And so at the Battle of Dublin Moor, this was Edward Balliol coming back to France to claim the Scottish throne for him. He said that he was the rightful claim against the forces of the infant king, the rightful king, David II. And so what Edward III did at this point is once again, he just put his weight behind the claim of Edward Balliol, just like Edward I had done with John Balliol. He wanted to basically control the king of Scotland. And so Edward Balliol returned from France in 1331, and the two sides met. At the, uh, David's, David II's army was under the command of the Earl of Mar, the Battle of Duplin, Duplin Moor on the 13th of August 1332. Now, despite superior numbers, the Battle of Duplin Moor was a disastrous defeat for the Scots' army. In blazing sunshine, the Scottish soldiers, which is like Scots soldiers with big massive pikes, uh, they had to charge uphill to attack the English on the hottest day of the year, and they got into a massive melee as they did so. Like Their army became more clogged than Alex Salmon's artery. <laughs> Basically, at this point, all the English longbowmen, they put their, rained their arrows down and they were absolutely wiped out. Although I personally don't think it's fair to make Scottish people fight on the hottest day of the year. I mean, like as soon as it gets about 15 degrees in this country, we go taps half. It's easy to wipe out an army when nobody's got any armour on, do you know what I mean? So anyway, it was a spectacular victory for Edward Balliol. Young David, he was moved to Dumbarton Castle and Edward Balliol had himself crowned king at Scone. So this meant at this point in Scotland's history, there was now two official kings of Scotland. But Edward Balliol, he only managed three months. The Scots launched a surprise raid on his residence in Annan on the 17th of December, 1332. Edward Balliol scarpered over the border to Carlisle, riding bareback, or the Boris Johnson method as we call it, uh, <laughs> and dressed only in his underwear. Again, like Boris escaping his latest wife he's been cheating on. Uh, Edward eventually get bored of Scotland and turn his attention to France and his claim to the English, or sorry, the French throne through his mother Isabella. David returned from France at the age of 17. Uh, he returned, oh sorry, I should have mentioned there, David would eventually have to be sent to France to escape the clutches of Edward III. Uh, he returned to France in 1341, and his return marked the end of any support for Edward Balliol. David took his, his frustrations out in the north of England. It was a bit like Margaret Thatcher in that respect. <laughs> and in 1346, he went too far because he was captured at the Battle of Neville's Cross. He was captured by the English and spent 11 years in English captivity. David was unable to father a surviving heir, and his death marked the end of the Bruce dynasty and the beginning of the famous Stuart dynasty, who would rule in Scotland and in Britain for 530 years, which is about the same length of time as our current queen has been reigning for as well. Uh, but yeah, Battle of Dublin, we were fought this day. Thank you. Uh, so we'll be testing you on that on the way out. <laughs> that was too much, right? No, I threw no, too no. many dates and facts no, at you. I, I just feel like it made mine look shit. Yeah, no, no. Alfred Hitchcock's birthday, move on. Yeah, yours was easier then. I should yeah. just go. I was, in fact, actually, can I be honest? The Battle of Dublin Moor was on the 12th of August. 
Oh, 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 oh. And I couldn't think of anything better. It was like today, the other one I was going to do, it was today is apparently the first episode of South Park was aired. And so I started writing that. And then I was like, no, I can't be asked for this. And then I did, right, okay. And I def- I'm sorry. No, no. You I looked at the, the accusing looks from the audience right now. First time anyone's ever cheated on me. I'm sorry, <laughs> Richard. I, do <laughs> I was very honest. I mean, they you would never know, would they? If we're being honest, I'm not even a performer. I knew that. <laughs> right, let's go to the second half of the show before time runs away too much. Right. So uh, we're going to uncover some of the history of Edinburgh. Now, obviously, we don't have much time, so I'm going to focus on the fact that we're in Surgeon's Hall today. And we'll explore some of the history of surgery in the city. Wow, this is just for you. Oh, brand. Yeah. So, uh, questions to panel: When was the first legal dissection of a human carried out in Scotland under Scots law? Un- under law. The first legal dissection. People were getting stabbed in Scotland for a long time. <laughs> 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 first time legal. someone was allowed to do it legally. Uh, I'm not so sure. I'm going to go 1860. That seems too late. I'm going to go 18th century. I reckon 17 something. Mm-hmm. 17, 17 1712. I'm going to go 1861. Okay. It was, uh, <laughs> you were closest. It was 1702. Yeah. Yeah. So Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. The first person to be dissected was called David Miles. He was executed on 27th of November for incest. His sister bore his child, and the village found the corpse on the midden heap. Village in faith. <laughs> <laughs> you know I live in faith. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. I'll see you later. <laughs> With a knife. Uh, even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged, and so was his sister, and so he was authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the cutting tables before, so who got the gig? What type of tradesperson do you think would get that kind of job? Carpenter. Carpenter, like, like you're thinking? Yeah. I'm thinking like an upholsterer or something, because it probably, you don't want to have it open, it need something like a nice wee kind of blanket or something to put over the body. Mm. I'm just going to go a guy called Dave. Like just an like an odd jobs guy, like you know the sort of like your U Ben's gone or like you know, yeah, 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 yeah. But like obviously it was like proper ages ago, so it'd be like a white cart man. <laughs> I uh, love the term proper ages ago. <laughs> proper ages. <laughs> yeah, okay. well, let, well, let me tell you, they were chimney sweeps. Oh. Yeah. But not before they were whinging about the cost of the lead weights used to hold the cloth down in that kind of upholsterer's fashion. Because you don't want to open, do you? Yeah, yeah. But it's a bit odd because uh, they wanted to carry the corpse through the city in a seemly manner, which, I mean, half the city had turned up to watch the guy being executed, mm. so why they were so concerned about that afterwards, I'm not sure. Now, I uh, don't know if you've got any ideas on this, but mm-hmm. it's a, it was the very first dissection, first chance legally to try and un- see what's inside the body. So how long do you think they took on that first dissection? Is that going to be very long or very short? Mm. I think they, I think they made a bit of a game of it. Like it was like countdown. They got thirty seconds, and then they it just like got logged out. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like yeah. digging in there. Um, it looks I, like a game like operation. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you not applauding? <laughs> <laughs> I am, but I'm scared of it. 
That's why I'm a button. I I think they they done it real quick. I think five minutes it took. They just they went they went ham. Right. Well, let me tell you, it was nine days. What? That is, that's an expedition. What <laughs> <laughs> um, different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon it each day. They began with a general discourse of the body before moving on to an inspection of key organs. For your sake, so it goes into details. But surely they didn't have, like, formaldehyde and stuff then, so it would have started yeah. rotting. It would have been so, at winter time, I assume. So it was in November. That's when the guy was executed. They also had an open wall at the back of the dissecting room to try and keep the body cool. But even then, you'd think nine days is certainly pushing it a bit. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet you it was a free fest show as well. Like, there's someone at the end going, it's free to get in, it's not free to leave. Do you want money in the bucket? Yeah, <laughs> give us a review. Yeah. They converted all to the telephone box to keep the the Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia. Did you do that one? Chloroform anaesthesia. No, we, we, we use propofol. And Dr. Joseph Lister pioneered the use of antiseptic during surgery. So yeah, 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 no, there's yeah. links. No, you're making the links, Richard, I like yeah, that. Okay. So, uh, but who was Dr. Robert Knox? He's the man that Birkin here would sell the bodies to. Yeah, so, so who was he then? He was a professor at the medical school. Yeah, yeah, so he was, he was a very influential person in society. He was a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department. Now, to give you an idea of, of this eminent person, what his character was like, he attended the Royal High School in Edinburgh, and people remembered him as a bully who thrashed his contemporaries. He failed his anatomy exam and had to retake it. He joined the army after graduating in 1814. You had to get 50% as well, mate. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. it. The bar's very low. It was, yeah. And there's not enough doctors. That's the ironic thing, yeah, but yeah. you know. Um, he was posted to Brussels when he joined the army and had to attend to the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. But in 1822, he was a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons. Knox became fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, during which time he was involved in setting up the major anatomical school where he was famed for his gory lectures of dissection. Another thing about Knox was he was apparently obsessed with men's head sizes. He measured the heads of men in Glasgow and Edinburgh and discovered that Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. So how would you interpret that scientific data? Phrenology, wouldn't it be? Yeah, that's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Lumps on the head. Because like Edinburgh tends to be a bit windier, the, like, the wind was shaving the sides of our heads. Uh. <laughs> 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 you know, you walk down a close and like, it's like a wind tunnel. Yeah. It's taking wee millimetres off of each side. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Bigger brain, more intelligence. Yeah, so, uh, well, except that, so what, so Glasgow men were more intelligent? Or yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip it, because usually yeah. Glasgow gets the stick, but I'm going to flip it. Yeah, yeah, so no, he thought Glasgow men needed bigger brains for like engineering type stuff, but the Edinburgh people were more refined and therefore needed, they'd, they'd just have smaller brains. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone in from Glasgow? Uh, that was his. So, like, the, the Edinburgh folk were better at organising their brains? I suppose so. I mean, I, I, it's, not, it's not my theory. It's, uh, he had to Absolutely justify it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, he was racially hostile to Highland Scots. Sorry, can't I am a Tudor, but anyway, uh, I mean, you probably. The Scottish people already know, but. Yeah, to Welsh. Tudor summer for the Highlands. Uh, he, was, he didn't like Welsh people, and he was especially antagonistic to Irish Celts openly advocating their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. So he was, he was a lovely guy. He was a lovely guy. And he liked to cut up bodies. Hmm. The Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train medical students was growing. 
and Knox's teaching methods required a ratio of about one cadaver per student. So what happened when a supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? How they invented the deep-fried Mars bar. <laughs> more people dying, more bodies. Oh, oh. <laughs> I was trying to make the connection. Mate. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Were you going to say something? Uh, I said something quite dark, so I'm not going to oh, repeat okay. it. Body snatching. Oh, it's going to go dark. Yeah. Um, but that, that's wild. The fact that one-to-one, -one, when I was dissecting, it was like 10 to 1. Ten not bodies to one student, oh, but okay. I mean <laughs> the other way around. The other way around. One body to ten right. students. Do you, so that's get, quite do you each, each get like a section in my or Do you kind of like move around like a, a game of duck duck goose? No, no, we we, we <laughs> there is some strategy to it. Like we'll start, we'll do the thorax, and then we'll work through that, and then we'll do the abdomen and work through that. So there is some method to the madness. Wow. Imagine that hangover. Have you ever hung over like a <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 I, I wouldn't be. Some students were. Some people like would see it and then like obviously go and yeah, vomit yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, apologies if this isn't. Oh gory. sorry, yeah, yeah that's yeah, a bit so it's a bit I'm gory. Try and keep it at a certain level, I suppose. So Edinburgh began to witness this sharp increase in grave robbing uh, and then also exhumation of bodies by so called resurrectionists. Now technically it wasn't illegal to steal a body because no one owned a body but it was illegal to exhume and uh, grave rob, so to take items from a grave. So how did rich people, especially in Edinburgh, we're talking here, how did they try to stop their relatives being exhumed when this became quite a major issue? They just had, they had things called, I'm, I'm cheating because I obviously know the city, and they had things called morse safes. Uh, so your body got a morse safe, which just a, like, big, literally just a big cage built into the ground body would go in there before it was then buried. Uh, if you had a wee bit more money, you'd have like a big stone slab mm -hmm. basically put over your grave. Yeah. And even had, you can walk around in some of the graveyards here. If you, goes up, if you guys go up to the new Calton burial ground, you'll see in the, in the walls of the graveyard they have watchtowers. This is where they would employ night watchmen to watch over the dead bodies. It's actually where the term graveyard shift comes from. Yeah, but it was a horrendous system because they would just pay off the night watchman and then dig up the dead bodies anyway. <laughs> and so that's why the need for the morgue safes and stuff came in after that. But didn't, they, didn't they want someone told that they had like a bell system or something in some of the graveyards that like like? Yeah, they had loads of booby traps and stuff in the in the coffins and stuff like that. Yeah. Was that? I think that you're thinking of if uh, people were, were worried that they might be buried alive, and they might wake up, so then they could pull on the bell. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, I don't know if there's any Americans in the audience, but incidentally, Americans who experienced something similar later in the 1800s came up with, with some suitably American solutions. So Philip Clover patented the coffin torpedo in 1878, which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of a coffin was prized open. <laughs> Well, wait till you hear about Thomas Howell's invention. He patented a shell buried under a coffin with wires, so thieves triggered the wires, it would effectively set off a landmine. Uh, <laughs> above the grave? No, underneath. So, oh. yeah, there wouldn't be much left of the body either, but, but I didn't there think normally, it through. So. Isn't there normally, yeah. as it like decomposes, like land sort of slumps, and stuff, so all of a sudden, like, Grandpa could just go <laughs> flying in the air and there's like a shift in. There he goes. There he, yeah, it's what he would have wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one advertisement for the Howell torpedo read, 
Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fear of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo. <laughs> ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. I've actually used the words mincemeat. Mm, mm. I also want to know where they put that advert as well. Yes. Like, like which, which, you know, sort of which newspaper is going to take that advertising space? In, in National Geographic or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway, back in Edinburgh in 1827, Irish immigrant William Hare was owed £4 in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, when he died. One of Knox's students gave Hare a tip-off that he would be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did, and he received £7 and 10 shillings. As there was a premium on to be made on fresh cadavers, what did he and his accomplice William Burke start doing? And we've already alluded to this, haven't we? Didn't they set up a strip club over the bar? <laughs> for the yeah. There's a strip club here in Edinburgh called uh, the Burke... Uh, or, sorry... I hear there's a strip club here in Edinburgh. Uh, yeah, it's called the Birkin here. Because that's how we celebrate our serial killers in the city. They were strip clubs, actually. But they don't know, they, they actually, the, the process is called Birking. So if you can you can look this up in the dictionary, you'll find the word Birking. And what would happen is William Burke would lay over the, the victim's ribcage while William here put his hands over the body. Slowly but surely... If you're thinking of this for a role play, by the way, then uh, my advice is to have a good safe word. Could go, <laughs> it can go downhill quite quickly, do you know what I mean? But, uh, no, the whole purpose of this was you kill them without having any marks or stuff on the body because you don't want, like, stab wounds and all that kind of stuff. The medical school doesn't want a cadaver that's, you know, being kind of cut up and all this kind of stuff. You can just pillow over the face, bam. Like the same thing, pretty much. It's a lot less effort. But, but the, the, um, Burke and Hare got their victims intoxicated first. So oh, sorry, did you not mention that, Richard? Sorry, sorry I yeah. yeah. So, unfortunately, it didn't always work because they tried to get an old Irish woman drunk and she drank them under the table. <laughs> <laughs> They're just notoriously <laughs> difficult to kill old Irish women. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried we, it so tried many it. times yeah. now and it's <laughs> a nightmare every time. That as far as we know, there were 16 murder victims and they suffocated them one at a time and carried them in a tea chest to Knox's students to hand over and they would get uh, between 8 and £10 each time, which is a lot of money then. Enough for one pint at the fringe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah nowadays, that's inflation. In a plastic yeah. cup as well. Yeah. But at one point they killed an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson, as Burke described them. So the tea chest was too small. So they had to use a herring barrel and load it onto a cart and pay a porter to take it to Knox's students and the students were getting a bit suspicious about all these corpses that were being brought because there's 16 at least over a period of 10 months so how did their plan go wrong do you think well mm. a lot of the victims were like recognisable people mm. that like the medical students would have known there's all sorts of horrible stories there was a guy called I think it was, it was Daft Jimmy who was like a kind of known simpleton who kind of roamed the streets of Edinburgh very recognisable character that the people of Edinburgh recognise and then suddenly one day there he is on the medical, on the, on the operating table in front of him. So the medical students would have known this guy, seen about That's the town insane. and then suddenly there he is on the dissection table. There's all sorts of horrible stories. I think there was, like, maybe one was like a, a prostitute that like the medical students had been with and then oh, wow. there she is on the operating table or the dissection table in front of him. But is that the right answer? Like they, they yeah, recognised yeah, 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 the yeah. bodies, basically. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 that did happen. Yeah, what also happened was they murdered someone, and the body was under the bed because it was a lodging house. There was a couple 
they were asked if there was a room and because they wanted to make more money they just said oh yeah we've got a room for you but you can't go in there just yet it's a bit like arriving early to an Airbnb or something and um, this couple were therefore very suspicious about what was going on so at the first opportunity they had a look in the room and then they saw the body and called the police so that's kind of where it all started to unravel it's constant time we're kind of running out but very briefly yeah. Give this to you, is it? Yeah, why so not? Burke and Hare, so they were both murderers, but mm -hmm. they didn't have any evidence to, to convict them. So how do you think the police managed to create is, a conviction out of This is before the time of DNA and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. Mm. Would they have got physically seen in the act? Um, were they physically, like, the police physically saw them kit murdering someone? Was it that well, there gruesome? Well, there was this body under the bed, so I guess that was kind of fairly major evidence. But basically, they, they, they got hair to snitch on Burke. Oh, wow. And they hair turned. then got off scot-free, but Burke ended up being hanged. Oh, <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness. So, so snitching pays off. Yeah, oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, bear that in mind. Yeah, if you're ever murdering and you're, there's more than one of you. So Hare was, uh, it was quite a notorious case. Lots of people recognised Burke and Hare from the courtroom and, and so on. So Hare was um, told to get out of the city, go south on the coach to Dumfries. But he was recognised there as well. A mob tried to lynch him. So again, the police spirited him away in the, sp in the dark of night and got him on the road to England and said, go on your way. And that's the last that anyone knows of what happened to him. So who knows what he got up to after that. But Burke, he was hanged on the 29th of January, 1829. And can you guess what happened to him after that? Oh, they, he became one of the bodies that they dissected. dissected. There we go. Yay. Can you, you know, you'll know this, won't you, where Burke, what happened to Burke's body after dissection? Uh, well, in the Surgeon's Hall Museum yeah. here in Edinburgh, there's a snuff box and a wallet made out of the skin of William Burke. And his skeleton is still used by the medical school here in Edinburgh. If you said you guys are visiting Edinburgh, you can go to the National Museum of Scotland, and they've got an anatomy, um, what do you call it? Like a, what do you call it? Like Example. Uh, well, I like well, like when someone comes in at a temporary time in a museum, exhibition. exhibition thank you. Sorry, I completely lost the word. Yeah, and so you can see his uh, skeleton. It's on display for the first time in like over twenty odd years. Or oh something. my goodness! It's still used by the medical school. Unfortunately, the, our time's really completely gone. Thanks to panellists, thanks to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the space for hosting us today. I've got a final on this day to end the show with, which is to mark H.G. Wells, the day that he died in 1946, aged 79. Here are some quotes from Wells from which to end the show. We all have our time machines, don't we? Those that take us back are memories, and those that carry us forward are dreams. Sometimes you have to step outside of the person you've been and remember the person you were meant to be, the person you want to be, the person you are. We should strive to welcome change and challenges because they are what help us grow. Without them, we grow weak, like the LOI in comfort and security. We need to constantly be challenging ourselves in order to strengthen our character and increase our intelligence. And finally, we must not allow the clock and the calendar to blind us to the fact that each moment of life is a miracle and a mystery. However, the clock and the calendar demands that we must close the show there. Thank you for coming. <laughs>